Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. change in the conduct of Great Britain towards us strengthens the hand of the friends of order and peace. We are laboring hard to establish in this country principles more and more national and free from all foreign ingredients, so that we may be neither Greeks nor Trojans, but truly Americans. Alexander Hamilton to Rufus King, December 16, 1796. 1796 would be a defining year for the new United States. Still only 20 years after it had declared its independence, and seven years into its latest form of government, there was still much that was uncertain about the future of the nation. That is not to say that it was in bad shape, though. Far from it. The value of foreign exports had increased from $539,000 in 1790 to just under $8.5 million in 1795. This meant that the customs duties being collected rose from just over $3.44 million in 1792 to just under $5.6 million in 1795. Production of raw cotton had increased from 3,135 bales in 1790 to 16,719 in 1795, while in five years, exports of pork, hams, bacon, and lard had increased 240%, exports of butter and cheese was up by 273%, and the export of beef and tallow had seen a more modest 50.1% increase. The national debt had grown by $5 million from 1791 to 1795, but economic indicators pointed to a strengthening economy that would ultimately be able to see through the Washington administration's gradual debt reduction plan. As a nation, though, there was still discussion about what it meant to be quote-unquote American, and two factions had developed in the political arena that had rather different ideas about that. The upcoming election meant that the division between the two would only grow larger, and this would be due in no small part to the actions taken by one of our principal allies, France. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to David Severa from the Early and Often podcast for reading our intro quote for this episode. In his podcast, David takes listeners through the history of elections in America, starting with Jamestown and moving forward from there. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should check it out. I'll have a link to it on the website, but you can also search for Early and Often on iTunes or anywhere else that fine podcasts can be found. As we've seen in previous episodes, European affairs have increasingly been playing a larger role in American domestic politics as well as in Washington's personal life. 
As we discussed last episode, Washington had opened his door and invited into his household the son of the Marquis de Lafayette, who was at that point languishing in a prison in Austria. Washington's new Secretary of War, James McHenry, had warned him around the time that he was deciding to invite George Washington Lafayette and his tutor to join his official household that the young Lafayette had likely been sent by Lafayette's wife, Adrian, as the individual, quote, best fitted to act impressively on your feelings and thereby remove any political obstacle to a diplomatic application. Adrian had indeed been at work in doing all she could to provide relief for her husband. The administration in the form of U.S. Minister to France, James Monroe, had already assisted Adrian to obtain a passport from the French government to travel to Olmutz, where she and their two daughters then sought and secured permission to join Lafayette in prison in October 1795. Lafayette, at that point, had been held in solitary confinement for a year following an attempted escape. So despite the fact that they were now resigning themselves to imprisonment, it must have been a relief for him to have the company. Furthermore, as discussed by historian Paul Sterling in his study of Lafayette's period of captivity, quote, beyond any previous action, Lafayette's escape attempt had drawn international attention to his fate and inspired calls for his release. His wife's initiative to join him in prison had a similar impact on world opinion. Arguably, that impact was even greater. Though now a prisoner in her own right, Adrian was allowed more liberties than her husband, and thus was able to establish communications with the U.S. Consul in Hamburg, John Parrish, by late February 1796. Individuals at all levels of the U.S. government were interested in securing Lafayette's release, including the president, who sent word indirectly via U.S. diplomats in London, communicating to the Austrian ambassador to Great Britain, and in, quote, a handwritten letter to the Austrian emperor, in mid-May 1796, quote, strictly as a private person, Washington expressed his desire for Lafayette's release. Washington also met with Justus Eric Bowman, a Hanoverian who had been recruited by Lafayette's supporters to work for his release, to discuss Washington's options in providing assistance. Unbeknownst to any of them, the new French government had included in their instructions to a French officer involved in negotiations with the Austrians in the spring of 1796 a call for Lafayette's release to be included in the ultimate agreement, even including a provision that Lafayette and his party could sail to the United States if they would like. We'll get back to these negotiations later, but I should note that this French officer in question is someone whose name you might want to remember, Napoleon Bonaparte. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the meantime, relations with France were becoming increasingly difficult under the new government of the Directory. In January 1796, official French government policy, as outlined by French Minister of Foreign Affairs, Charles-Francois Delacroix, became to seek, quote, the dissolution of the bond between the United States and Great Britain by inciting those Americans known to be hostile to England to repudiate the Washington administration. The French 
both in Paris and Philadelphia, would take this approach in different directions. In addition to working through diplomatic circles and cultivating the support of pro-French leaders, the French government and its representatives were willing to support efforts aimed at regime change in the U.S. In March 1796, French minister to the U.S. Adet hired the former governor of Guadeloupe, General Victor Collot, to undertake a special mission in what was then the western United States. Collot was to travel through the region and identify, quote, possible pro-French secessionist conspirators. Now, France was not the only European power doing this, to be sure, as the second president of the United States will learn early on in his term. However, Collot's mission was quickly discovered by the administration as he had, quote, accidentally acquired a Federalist mole among his traveling companions who sent lurid reports back to Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott. This did not engender support for the French government within the Washington administration. And as the U.S. minister in France was learning, the feeling was mutual in the directory government. By February, the French government was threatening U.S. Minister Monroe that they considered the Jay Treaty to, quote, cancel the Treaty of 1778 and place the United States on the Allied side against France. This placed the French minister in a difficult position as, per his prior, quote-unquote, fraternal embrace of the Thermidorian government, Monroe was very much inclined to be pro-France. But as he had been chastened in the past by the State Department for appearing too much of a Francophile, Monroe knew he was walking a fine line. Thus, he took the sensible approach and stuck to the policy of neutrality as dictated by the Washington administration. Oh, I'm just kidding. He did the other thing. As the French foreign minister threatened to send an envoy extraordinary to the U.S., quote, to demand explanations of Jay's treaty, Monroe wrote a letter to Delacroix urging him not to do so as it, quote, would advertise to the world the disagreement between the two republics. And besides, the pro-Washington, i.e. pro-British, faction would be the only one to benefit if the French tried to influence U.S. government policy during an election year. No, Monroe advised the French minister that, quote, left to ourselves, everything will, I think, be satisfactorily arranged, and perhaps in the course of the year. So basically, you have the U.S. minister to France saying, hold off for a year and we'll likely have a party more favorable to you in charge of the government, not the folks to whom I currently report. And you thought Randolph was indiscreet. Monroe went further in March when he met with Delacroix and the French minister read him, quote, a list of seven specific charges against the U.S., to which Monroe responded, quote, that he would be the first to urge his government to render justice to France if it could be shown that the United States had injured its ally and declared that as a representative of the American nation, he was bound to observe the president's instructions as long as he served as minister, but he would not remain in office for a moment if he were required to promote a measure contrary to his principles. Naturally, neither his letter in February nor his discussion with Delacroix in March was reported back to the government in Philadelphia, though he did share some about his approach to the French in coded letters to his friend, Representative James Madison. Monroe historian Harry Ammon asserts that Monroe's approach was intended to try to bring the French government back to a more moderate position, but that instead, it had the opposite effect and convinced them now more than ever that playing to the pro-French faction in the U.S. could work to their advantage. 
Monroe reported back the nation's difficulties with the new government under the directory and at least some of his efforts to smooth matters over in a letter to Secretary of State Timothy Pickering on March 25, 1796. But instead of being taken as the work of a diplomat working hard to preserve peaceful relations between his home nation and his diplomatic posting, Pickering used the letter as further evidence in his already existing campaign to highlight Monroe's incapacity to serve the nation in his current post. Now, to be fair, part of the issue was that starting in the summer of 1795, relations between the Washington administration, primarily represented by first acting, then permanent Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, and the new French minister to the U.S., Pierre Augustadet, had become increasingly frosty. First, there had been the case of Lacassius, a French naval vessel classified as, quote, a public vessel of war in the French Navy that was alleged to have illegally been outfitted in Philadelphia under another name and then proceeded to capture a ship owned by a Philadelphia merchant firm in the Caribbean before returning to Philadelphia claiming rights to harbor there under the Franco-American Treaty of 1778. When it arrived in the harbor, Lacassius was identified as the ship outfitted there not that long ago, and the merchant whose ship they had captured filed a legal suit against the ship and its captain, the captain being himself an American. As the legal case made its way through the courts, and the Washington administration worked to gain incontrovertible proof that Lacassius was, in fact, the same vessel that had been outfitted in Philadelphia, an act that would have violated Washington's neutrality proclamation, Reports came in at the end of September 1795, quote, that ships suspiciously similar to Lacassius were being clandestinely outfitted at both Baltimore and New York. The British diplomatic representatives were furious, and so was Pickering. In his back and forth with the debt, as noted by Pickering biographer Gerald Clairfield, quote, he was unable to keep his personal sentiments out of his correspondence with the debt and in a clearly antagonistic vein, accused the French minister of attempting to circumvent the federal law. The case of Lacassius would remain tied up in the courts until, quote, October 1796, months after debt had angrily surrendered French rights to the by then practically valueless Hulk, when the court upheld the French contention and freed the remains of the vessel. By that time, though, other matters had taken precedence in disturbing relations between the two republics, primarily the Jay Treaty. A debt in late September 1795 would protest to Pickering that the Jay Treaty represented the U.S. violating its own neutrality proclamation, as it would allow for freer trade between the U.S. and Britain at a time when Britain was blocking U.S. trade with France. A debt warned that this unfair situation on the high seas would, quote, plunged the French people into the horrors of famine while benefiting Britain. Rather than actually answering Adet's charges, however, Pickering decided to ignore them and deliberately did not respond to Adet's letter of protest. Even more telling, from all accounts, it appears that he did not share Adet's protest with Washington. This was an egregious overstep on Pickering's part. Though Britain was by far the United States' largest trading partner, France had been the first nation to provide military aid to the U.S. during the Revolutionary War, and, despite the disruptions of the Revolution, was still one of the largest European powers. This would be like the U.S. in the modern era, 2018 as of this recording, ignoring a protest from Canada 
that we have violated a treaty with them. A debt would return to the issue on March 29, 1796, the day after the House passed the Appropriations Bill for the Jay Treaty, when he wrote to Pickering, asserting that the U.S. was not doing enough to protest British impressment of Americans into service in the British Navy, and that it was a tactic approval of British aggression against French trade, quote, if the American government should not take the step which the duty of neutrality dictates to it and work to end impressment. While we're aware that this argument is reaching, as the Washington administration had demonstrated in its instructions to John Jay in his special mission, that it was quite concerned about the issue of impressment, Pickering did nothing to assuage a debt of this idea. His silence instead seemed to justify a debt's accusations and caused the French minister to look for ways that he might be able to throw some support to the Democratic-Republican cause in the upcoming elections. Speaking of, I'd say it is high time that we talked about the election of 1796. The rumors were flying fast over who would succeed Washington, and party leaders on both sides were preparing themselves for the contest. But there was just one problem. President Washington hadn't officially announced that he wasn't running for a third term. By early January, even Vice President Adams, who had been kept out of the loop during Washington's tenure, was writing to his wife Abigail of reliable word from one of the cabinet members, quote, that the president was solemnly determined to serve no longer than the end of his present period. He told Abigail that, quote, every person I meet believes the president is determined unequivocally to retire. But until Washington himself made the announcement, all preparation had to happen behind the scenes even on the other side of the fence. As Madison wrote to Monroe in late February, quote, The Republicans, knowing that Jefferson alone can be started with hopes of success, mean to push him. As early as mid-November 1795, Chancellor Robert R. Livingston of New York was writing to Madison that, quote, Public attention should be turned as soon as possible on Mr. Jefferson to support his candidacy. Madison's main concern, however, once Washington announced and they were able to move, was not Adams or Hamilton, but rather Jefferson himself. Quote, I fear much that he will mar the project and ensure the adverse election of a Federalist by a peremptory and public protest. Luckily for Jefferson's chances, it seemed that Washington was in no hurry to make any public announcement. So what was holding Washington up in announcing a decision that, as we've seen in previous episodes, it seems that he made a while back. Well, as we've seen previously, Washington did have a proclivity to think long and hard about how his actions might be interpreted by the public. In the cover letter to the first draft of his farewell address that he sent to Hamilton on May 15th, Washington wrote of his concern that his decision to retire would be interpreted as being due to his, quote, conviction of fallen popularity and despair of being reelected. In the draft, which draws upon the draft that Madison had prepared for him when he was considering retiring after one term in 1792, he asserts that one of the reasons he had agreed to seek a second term in the first place was his concern that, quote, my retirement might be ascribed to political cowardice. In place thereof, I resolved, if it should be the pleasure of my fellow citizens, to honor me again with their suffrages, to devote such services as I could render a year or two longer trusting that within that period, all impediments to an honorable retreat would be removed. Four years later, and those same fears were creeping up. 
exacerbated by the fact that Washington was now being directly challenged in the press. The first draft reflects how much this disturbed him. In addition to attacking the press and directly answering charges against him, including that of the calm observer, quote, I have not received more from the public than my expenses. Washington comes across as a defeated leader begging for a kernel of sympathy. Quote, the acts of my administration are on record by these which will not admit change with circumstances, nor admit of different interpretations. I expect to be judged abide. If they will not acquit me, in your estimation, it will be a source of regret. But I shall hope notwithstanding, as I did not seek the office with which you have honored me, that charity may throw her mantle over my want of abilities to do better that the gray hairs of a man who has, accepting the interval between the close of the Revolutionary War and the organization of the new government, either in a civil or military character, spent five and forty years, all the prime of his life, in serving his country, be suffered to pass quickly to the grave, and that his errors, however numerous, if they are not criminal, may be consigned to the tomb of oblivion as he himself soon will be to the mansions of retirement. As Patrick Henry is noted as saying at the criticism being leveled against Washington, quote, If he whose character as our leader during the whole war is so roughly handled in his old age, what may be expected of men of the common standard? Washington was bruised, battered, and ready to go but his honor demanded that he find a way to exit the stage from a position of strength, if at all possible. Cue music and enter Hamilton. As noted by Ron Chernow, quote, Hamilton tackled the task of revising and redrafting Washington's farewell address with exemplary energy, giving depth and scope and sterling expression to the overarching themes listed by Washington. That summer, he prepared two documents for Washington. One was a reworking of the Madison-Washington draft, and the other, his own version of the speech. Washington preferred the latter, which became the basis of the final product. Washington and Hamilton honed and polished the speech until it had a uniformly authoritative voice. The result was a literary miracle. If Hamilton was the major wordsmith, Washington was the tutelary spirit and final arbiter of what went in. This message would allow Washington to bow out of the contest with honor and dignity. But before he did so, Federalists worked behind the scenes to determine exactly who they would support to succeed Washington. In the first essay in the Defense Essay Series, released in late July 1795, Hamilton had broached the issue of Washington's successor and asserted that, quote, there are three persons prominent in the public eye as the successor of the actual President of the United States in the event of his retreat from the station, Mr. Adams, Mr. Jay, Mr. Jefferson. Jay had, by the beginning of 1796, served as governor of New York for a few months and had demonstrated leadership in his handling of a yellow fever epidemic that hit New York City in the summer and early fall of 1795. Though Jay got a boost from state elections in the spring when voters demonstrated their support of the treaty Jay had negotiated by voting in a wave of Federalist candidates, his candidacy never really took off in other parts of the nation, especially in the West, 
where many were resentful of Jay's willingness to give away navigation rights on the Mississippi River back during his tenure as Minister of Foreign Affairs during the Confederation government. While Jay's candidacy suffered from him being too well-known of a lightning rod, Adams suffered from the opposite. While the public was aware that Adams had been a prominent leader during the Revolution, they knew little else about him. As noted by Jeffrey Paisley, quote, John Adams was a statesman whose greatest deeds were known chiefly by his peers and superiors, not the public at large. Furthermore, Jefferson did not seem to be the only candidate that reflected an ambivalent attitude about being the next president. John Jay went so far as to write Washington in April 1796, urging him to seek a third term, asserting that, quote, attachment to you as well as to my country urges me to hope and to pray that you will not leave the work unfinished. Remain with us at least while the storm lasts, and in chill you can retire like the sun in a calm, unclouded evening. While Adams did not go quite so far, he did in letters to his wife Abigail in early 1796 assert that, quote, whatever anyone may think, I love my country too well to shrink from danger in her service, provided I have a reasonable prospect of being able to serve her to her honor and advantage. But if I have reason to think that I have either a want of abilities or of public confidence to such a degree as to be unable to support the government in a higher station, I ought to decline it. A couple of weeks later, he wrote to her that, quote, I have no very ardent desire to be the butt of party malevolence. Having tasted of that cup, I found it bitter, nauseous, and unwholesome. There was another Federalist, though, who for better or worse was well known throughout the nation and who had proven himself to be highly ambitious in the past, Alexander Hamilton. Noel Webster, editor of the Federalist newspaper, The Minerva, suggested Hamilton as a candidate to succeed Washington. However, little action was taken on that proposal. And as we now know, there are possible reasons that Hamilton was willing to play the role of kingmaker rather than seek the top post for himself. Though, as we discussed way back in episode 1.14, he had done what he could to keep the scandal silent. There was always the danger that news of his affair with Maria Reynolds would be made public and destroy his political future. Democratic-Republican editor James Callender suggested later on that a Democratic-Republican, upon hearing of the suggestion of Hamilton being put forward as a candidate, sent a threat to Hamilton that the proof of his affair with Reynolds would be made public if there were any more talk of him as a candidate for president. Whether this is true or not is debatable, but it is hard to imagine that the Reynolds affair did not play into his decision to limit his ambitions for the time being. This did not mean, though, that Hamilton and his associates were willing to accept Adams as the Federalist candidate. Before much more could be thought of the election, some business had to be taken care of. Washington had submitted the treaty negotiated with Algiers, as discussed in episode 1.30, to the Senate on February 15th. And though the treaty was hotly debated in political circles, it achieved nothing near the public discussion invoked by the Jay Treaty for a couple of reasons. First, due to the United States' past history with Britain, citizens in general were more acutely aware of the issues between those two nations than they were those between the U.S. and Algiers. 
Also, Washington had asked the Senate, quote, to maintain confidentiality with the debate of the Algerine Treaty, especially with respect to the amounts demanded for tribute and ransom, lest Tunis and Tripoli learn of them and demand equivalent amounts. Despite objections over the cost of the treaty and the fact that it was seen to be yet another lopsided deal where the U.S. would gain little besides peace and some, quote, long-awaited commercial protection in the Mediterranean, the Senate ultimately did approve the treaty on March 6th. Following the ratification of the treaty on March 15th, Washington invoked a clause of the 1794 Act providing for the construction of the first six naval frigates that stated that, quote, if a peace shall take place between the United States and the Regency of Algiers, that no further proceedings be had under this act. In essence, Washington was calling the bluff of the standing military-wary Congress. Was Congress really willing to stop construction on the naval frigates, which would thus cause, quote, widespread unemployment among shipbuilders all up and down the East Coast? On April 20th, Congress responded by approving, quote, a supplemental act authorizing the completion of two of the 44-gun frigates, the United States at Philadelphia and the Constitution at Boston, and one 36-gun ship, the Constellation at Baltimore. Though three ships could do little to protect U.S. shipping in the Mediterranean, it did ensure that a standing navy would be a permanent fixture in the federal infrastructure moving forward. Unlike the Algerine Treaty, Pinckney's treaty with Spain sailed through quickly and without much debate. It was sent to the Senate on February 26, 1796, and the Senate ratified it in early March. By August 2nd, it was in effect and many of the issues that had existed between Spain and the United States had been resolved thanks to the diplomatic efforts of Thomas Pinckney. Pinckney, having completed his mission to Spain and having been in London since 1792, formally requested letters of recall and a letter back to the government in Philadelphia on October 10, 1795. When word arrived in the capital city that Pinckney was seeking to be relieved, Senator Rufus King leapt on the opportunity. As he wrote to Hamilton on May 2nd, 1796, quote, You must know that I am not a little tired with the separation from my family and drudging in the Senate. The work now before us being finished, I think I am entitled to a dismission. It would be agreeable to me to spend a few years abroad. And if I do not misconceive the interests of the country, I think I could render some service to the public at the present period in England. Will you converse with Mr. Jay on this subject? Who said the art of subtlety is dead? Hamilton took the bait and wrote to Secretary of State Timothy Pickering on the 10th. Contained in this letter was a note to the president himself, but Hamilton also wanted to enlist Pickering's help in arguing King's case. Quote, If we had power to make a man for the purpose of assuming the post of U.S. Minister to Britain, we could not imagine a fitter than Mr. King. He is tired of the Senate and I fear will resign at all events. I presume he would accept the mission to England. Can there be a doubt that it will be wise to offer it to him? In his letter to Washington, Hamilton laid on the salesman pitch even thicker. Quote, I verily believe that a more fit man for the purpose cannot be found. Should you think well of his appointment, I presume he would be disposed by a previous resignation to make the way easy to his nomination by you. Considering the strong commercial relations of the two countries, it is truly very important that each should have, with the other, a man able and willing to give fair play to reciprocal interests. The previous resignation noted was a wink-wink 
that King would be willing to resign from the Senate immediately to avoid any allegations that he had attempted to sway the vote in his favor should Washington give him the nod. Pickering then backed up Hamilton's argument in a paper on the 12th, in which he asserted that, quote, a minister of his, King's, abilities and experience and law knowledge would seem peculiarly desirable at this time for the mission to London. Despite this litany of support coming to him from his trusted, and not quite so trusted, advisors, Washington demonstrated a show of independence in pushing back on the idea of appointing King to the diplomatic post. Washington wrote to Hamilton on the 15th that, quote, There can be no doubt of his, King's, abilities, nor in my mind is there any of his fitness. But you know as well as I what has been said of his political sentiments with respect to another form of government, and from thence can be at no loss to guess at the interpretation which will be given to the nomination of him. Basically, Washington knew that King was perceived as being too pro-British and too partisan, and was concerned about how his appointment would appear in the face of Washington's increasingly hollow claims of nonpartisanship. In the next sentence, though, Washington about-faced, and I quote, However, the subject shall have due consideration, but a previous resignation would, in my opinion, carry with it too much the appearance of concert, and would have a bad, rather than a good, effect. While Washington had King in the running, he didn't want him to resign from the Senate prior to his confirmation, as it might appear that the administration presumed that his confirmation was a fait accompli. Given Washington's recent history with nominations, it's easy to understand his wariness at seeming too presumptive. Despite his concern, Washington submitted King's nomination on May 19th, and the appointment was confirmed the next day. King then resigned from his Senate seat on the 23rd and started making preparations to travel to London. Washington had submitted one other important piece of business to Congress on April 8th. The Southwest Territory had sent to the administration a draft constitution and a request for statehood, and Washington submitted the matter without a recommendation. The House took up the issue in early May, and despite opposition from Federalists, Madison and Gallatin were able to rally support to pass the measure on May 6th with a vote of 43 to 30. The debate then went over to the Senate, where debate carried forward for the greater part of the month, during which time the two men, William Blount and William Cock, who had been elected as the state's first senators, had arrived in Philadelphia to take their seats. Though not allowed to vote, they were granted seats in the Senate and were witness on June 1st to Congress passing and the President signing off on the bill to make Tennessee the 16th state of the Union. One other person who will become much more familiar with on down the line had arrived in Philadelphia just in time for the historic event, Andrew Jackson of Nashville. Jackson would go on to become Tennessee's first member of the U.S. House of Representatives in January. In addition to the composition of Congress, this new state would also change up the electoral math as it meant that there would be three additional electors for which the presidential and vice presidential candidates in 1796 would vie. And as Federalists had opposed Tennessee statehood, their chances in the new state were not favorable. Who would the Federalist candidate be, though? That still all hinged on whether Washington would or wouldn't run for a third term. For as the summer of 1796 settled in and Congress adjourned, the president still had not made his intentions public. While working out the final details of his farewell address, Washington grew concerned over having waited past the adjournment of Congress to make his intentions known, and confided his concerns to Hamilton. 
Hamilton, in turn, reassured Washington that he was right to wait in case there was an emergency, either foreign or domestic. Quote, if a storm gathers, how can you retreat? Washington returned to Mount Vernon for the summer, and Hamilton sent him revised versions of the farewell address in early August. The two men went back and forth in secret, with special couriers being sent between Virginia and New York, as the president was concerned that his correspondence in the regular mail was being opened. As the final touches were being made to the address, one other important piece of business remained. As we noted earlier in this episode, as 1796 progressed, tensions with France grew ever more pronounced, and the administration began to consider that, if war were to be avoided, negotiations would need to be carried out in Paris as well as Philadelphia. The problem was that the current U.S. minister to France was unreliable in terms of staying in the boundaries of administration policy. His political proclivities were well known, and thus Washington authorized the recall of James Monroe with Pickering writing out the orders on June 13th. However, the recall of Monroe meant that here we are again, trying to determine someone to fill an important position in the administration. Again, Washington consulted with Hamilton, and Hamilton in mid-June noted four possibilities in a letter to Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott, Secretary of War James McHenry, Henry William de Saussure of South Carolina, John Marshall of Virginia, and our old friend Charles Coatsworth Pickney of South Carolina. By early July, Hamilton had settled on Pinckney as the prime choice and wrote as such to Washington as he felt him to be, quote, a friend to the government and understood to be not unfriendly to the French Revolution, but cautions that, quote, unfortunately, every past experience forbids the hope that he will accept. It is possibly because of Pinckney's repeated protestations of his personal finances requiring his vigilant attention that Washington instead opted for another candidate as his first choice for the post. On July 8th, Washington wrote to John Marshall, asserting, quote, that it has become indispensably necessary to recall our minister at Paris and to send one in his place who will explain faithfully the views of this government and ascertain those of France. Nothing would be more pleasing to me than that you should be this organ if it were only for a temporary absence of a few months. Having been turned down by Marshall in the past as well, and in an effort to expedite the matter, Washington also sent along a letter to Pinckney in case Marshall declined the offer, which Marshall could then send on to Pinckney. Marshall, claiming to be in the midst of finalizing a major bit of personal business, did in fact decline, and sent Washington's letter on to Pinckney. This time, would prove to be the winning one for asking Pinckney, though, as the man from South Carolina, despite some personal entanglements with which he would have to contend in order to accept, did, in fact, accept the posting as U.S. Minister to France. The call of duty was too strong this time for Pinckney to resist. Pinckney's biographer Marvin Zonizer attributes some of this to political concerns, asserting that the Federalist strength in South Carolina was fading, and that, as Pinckney's brother Thomas, being recalled at his request from Britain, left no prominent representation for the state in the executive branch, Charles felt it necessary to accept to strengthen the Federalist cause in upcoming elections. Certainly, the election results add strength to Zonizer's hypothesis, but I'm getting ahead of myself. 
We'll talk much more about the election, as well as the final unsettled days of the Washington presidency next time, in an episode I'd like to call The Finalish Curtain Call. Special thanks again to David Severa of the Early and Often podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Also, I'd like to thank the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. For all the power plays being made at the end of the Washington presidency, it could not come across nearly as clear without his efforts for the podcast. If you, like me, could use Andrew's audio editing expertise on your podcast or audio project, reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, there are a number of ways that you can send me any questions, comments, or Decision 1796 t-shirts. I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Not caught up on episodes or want to learn how you can subscribe to the podcast? No problem. We've got you covered at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also find source notes for this episode as well as all past episodes over there as well. Like the podcast? Then why not let everyone know? Please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or anywhere else that allows you to leave feedback on this podcast. Word of mouth has helped this podcast to grow since day one, so I thank you for anything you can do to spread the word. Last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you for listening. It is a joy to be able to spend this time with each of you, and I know there are plenty of programs from which you could choose to listen, so I wanted you to know how much I appreciate your choice to listen to this podcast. Take care, dear friends, and shall we meet again next time. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.